Let me invite you to take your Bible with me. Genesis chapter 48 and 40, <clears throat> excuse me, 49 uh, through verse 27. Now, it's a long section. I'm not going to read it uh, all together. I'll, I'll summarize it and refer to it. Um, so let's look there. And at various points, I'll encourage you to follow along in your own Bible uh, what we're dealing with in a particular section. Before we get to the, the word and uh, discussing it together, let's, um, let's ask for divine help. Let's ask for God's help now. Father in heaven, you have spoken. And we have the record of your words in this book, our Bibles, your scriptures. These words to us are life. Where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so I pray that you would tune our hearts and our minds, our, open our ears to hear from you. Lord, even through the weakness of a, of a human messenger, we know that you can speak mightily and we ask that you would. So I pray that you would guide our thoughts, help us to eliminate any distractions. God as well, help the proclaimer to focus only on what is uh, necessary and of you and of your word. And, and may what uh, remains in our minds and in our hearts uh, be the true living word of God. So please, Father, accomplish your work by your Holy Spirit among us now for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As I said, as we're, we're focusing this morning on 48 and 49 through 27, we're coming to the end of this, this book of Genesis. And uh, it, it helps every once in a while just to, to pause and say, well, what are we looking at here? Because uh, as we've moved through Genesis, there are a lot of stories, and it's a story about initially creation, and then a story about a family and how that develops and then ultimately tribes in that family. And, and it, it isn't just history, but it's been given by God for a purpose. It has been given by God for a purpose. Now, in the previous chapter, we looked at uh, Jacob, the patriarch, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is anticipating his own death, and he called his son Joseph uh, to his side, and he, he wanted to make him to promise to, to bury him in the land of Canaan once he dies. Jacob was making that claim on the land of promise that the Lord had promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob is now acting on that promise, saying, put my bones there, bury me there. As chapter 48 begins, it says, after this, and it's indicating perhaps a, a short time later, Jacob is about to die. And as we look through the, our Bibles this morning and we see the entirety of chapter 48, really to summarize that, is, is Jacob calling Joseph in and jo uh, Jacob blessing Joseph and his sons, uh, Manasseh, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then chapter 49, the, the statements of blessing, if you will, continue through the entirety of the chapter as, as Jacob dresses the, the entirety of his clan all the way up to uh, verse 27. Now, as we'll move through this, or if you have actually taken the time to read this on your own, uh, the chapter headings uh, sometimes indicate blessing, and you'll see that word blessing come up a number of times. Some of the things that Jacob says, to be sure, are indeed blessings, but some of them are not. They don't feel very blessing-y. I don't think that's a word, but they don't feel like blessings. They feel more like pronouncements of difficulty, sometimes even doom, or pronouncements of disappointment. So some of the things that Jacob says, yes, they're blessings. What is, what is clear to me, though, as I've read through them and studied them, is that they are prophetic pronouncements. They are reading, uh, there, as we read them, we see that there are pronouncements regarding the future of the tribes descending from Israel's sons, from Jacob's sons. Now, the overarching message is, of course, hope for the Israelite nation. But again, I ask the question, why are we reading these stories, and, and why are they there in Scripture, and why, why this level of detail? Well, from our vantage point, of reading this passage of Scripture, we cannot say for certain one, what impact these particular pronouncements that Jacob makes on, uh, towards his sons, what, what impact they have on them. 
But those pronouncements certainly mattered for the Israelites. And I'll remind you that the initial audience of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, were the Israelites who were about to cross into the Promised Land, crossing the Jordan River and possessing the land, the very land that God had promised, the very land that Jacob uh, wanted his bones buried in, the very land where Abraham and Sarah and Rebekah and Leah and Isaac were buried, the very land promised. So from, from the vantage point of reading Scripture, we can't say what Jacob's sons cared about what Jacob was saying. But it matters to us, and it mattered to the Israelites. And I would say this, this is sort of a summary statement as we look at this story today. God has given this word to show us ourselves. It's kind of like a mirror. The living and active word of God leaves us, as it says in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. The living and active word of God leaves us naked and exposed, ultimately to the end that we humble ourselves and receive the remedy to our alienation from God because of our own sin. And Christ is that remedy. So, I'll get to explaining that in a moment, but here are some simple exhortations that I want to take uh, as we seek to apply the scriptures this morning. And I have three headings that, that seem to, uh, as a way to kind of summarize what, what is before us in these two chapters. Consider your legacy Know that God's word is sure and trust in God's promise. Consider your legacy. Know that God's word is sure and trust in God's promise. Now again, just as a summary of the chapter, uh, chapter 48, uh, Joseph uh, comes in to his father with his sons and receives a blessing. Chapter 49, Jacob then blesses, and I put that title in air quotes, he makes pronouncements on the rest of his sons and uh, together. So, consider your legacy, know that God's word is sure, and trust in God's promise. First of all, consider your legacy. I think most of us probably agree, though Kathy and I haven't actually done this yet. There's wisdom in having a will. And even as I say it out loud, she's gonna say to me in our drive to KC this afternoon, say, you know, we ought to get that done. Yes, we're gonna get that done. But I think there's wisdom in it. Um, A lot of people put a lot of effort into deciding what happens with their stuff when they die. But the most important thing that you leave your children is not your stuff. And I hope you'd agree with this statement. The most important thing is not the stuff you leave, but it's the legacy you leave. That is to say, who you are what your character is like. Those things have a much greater impact on the next generation than any money or trinkets you might leave behind for your children. I want us to consider this morning the character of Jacob's sons when he made these pronouncements. Well, first of all, let's deal with Joseph. And uh, from from the previous section in Scripture, all from the time of, of we're introduced to him, his birth, and how he... Uh, had dreams from the Lord, how he shared those with his brothers, how he was uh, sold into slavery, how he he served faithfully even in, in difficult circumstances, how he rose to prominence in Egypt and ultimately saved his family. Joseph Joseph's life was marked by faithfulness. All of chapter 48 is dedicated to Joseph and his sons. And I think we could read this and see that in some sense there is a reward for obedience. Uh, Joseph is called to Jacob first. Now, understand that Joseph is 11th in the order of sons, the sons of Jacob. But what Jacob is doing in chapter 48 is effectively giving Joseph the blessing of the firstborn. The firstborn is Reuben, and Jacob is replacing him effectively with Joseph. And why, why is Reuben cast aside? Well, well, we'll see why in a moment. But the firstborn was a place of honor. He was, the firstborn was afforded that place of preeminence over his brothers. And that preeminence implied a a mantle of leadership that would pass to the firstborn, really from the father when the father died. And in a practical sense, it meant that the, the, the portion of the father's estate would be fully half of all that he had. The firstborn would get half of the stuff and the rest would, would divide the other half equally among them. So effectively, 
the 11 brothers would divide a half. I don't know what the math is, but you can figure that out. Certainly not the same as the firstborn. But what's surprising in the blessing is that, is that Jacob gives to Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, the place of Simeon and Levi as the second and third. So Joseph gets the place of firstborn, Ephraim and Manasseh, Manasseh get the second and third position. And I'll take you to verse 5 if you're looking in your Bibles. Um, Joseph comes to Jacob and Jacob says, And now, your two sons, this is chapter 48, verse 5, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Now, for reasons only known, or I should say unknown, except in retrospect, Ephraim, the second of Joseph's sons, is elevated to the first place of the two. Reuben, Reuben and Simeon and Levi were first, second, and third in order. And in effect, they've been replaced, as I mentioned, by Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Now, the sons of Joseph are reckoned, reckoned as Jacob's own. Now, we're talking about legacy here. Scripture tells us nothing about the character of Joseph's sons. Nothing. We know nothing about them. But I take it, it was Joseph's character that was the reason to elevate Ephraim and Manasseh as heads of clans. Joseph left a legacy, and that legacy afforded to Joseph's sons a place of prominence in Jacob's family. Now, by contrast, we skip over to chapter 49. Joseph seemed to be rewarded for his faithfulness and obedience. By contrast, verse 49, we start off the list of the oldest, and we discover that there are consequences for sin. Uh, chapter 35, verse 22. Here is the, and I say this in blessing, <laughs> in quotes, the blessing, the blessing or the pronouncement on Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn. This is forty-nine chap uh, chapter 49, verse 3. You are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Now, if we just stop there, they're like, hey, thanks, Dad. That's, that's good to hear. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. And he gives the reason why. And we're reminded of the egregious sin of Reuben. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went to my couch. That was the occasion where where um, Reuben went into his father's concubine. That's euphemism. I think you understand what that is. And Israel heard of it. Nothing is mentioned back when that, when that story is told to us in chapter 35, verse 22. Israel heard of it. But now when it comes time for the blessing, Reuben hears the consequence. You shall not have preeminence. Then he moves on to Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. It's not sounding very good, is it? For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And here now Jacob is making reference to the violence committed by both Simeon and Levi as they took revenge on the Shechemites. Not just, not just the one prince's, uh, the, the ruler's son, the prince of that, clan, but in a ruse, inviting them to, to fellowship, inviting them into the family of Jacob's clan. You all get circumcised. 
But on the third day, while they were healing, Simeon and Levi slaughtered every last male. And at that time, this is from Genesis chapter 34, and at that time, Jacob said to them, you have made me a stench. You've made me loathsome to the people around. Well, now the consequence of Simeon and Levi is not receiving so much a blessing, but really a pronouncement, a curse. Looking ahead, neither Simeon nor Levi received their own inheritance in the, in the settlement of the land. Simeon was ultimately absorbed into Judah. And if you have a, 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 um, a Bible map at the back, well, some of you actually have printed Bibles, you can look and you have maps at the back. And you'll see that Simeon, is, his name's sitting in the middle of this large territory of Judah. He doesn't have his own borders. He's just kind of amalgamated in to Judah. He never gets his own territory. Likewise, Levi never receives a specific allotment in the land. He's not denied entrance into the land, but the tribe of Levi effectively become servants of the temple. Honored place to be sure, but never receiving an allotment. And their, their numbers are scattered out throughout all of the, the nation of Israel in various different cities. A reward for obedience and dishonor for disobedience. And that's worth considering. And here's the question I would ask. Is God directly punishing the brothers with poor character and rewarding Joseph for his good character? So is God punishing the brothers who behave badly for their poor character and is he rewarding Joseph for his good character? Certainly God rules over all these things, but in the examples given, I think what it reveals is that the consequence or blessings is ultimately the legacy of the father. And like I said, we know nothing about the character of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Yet they received a blessing because of Joseph. Faithfulness was his legacy. And as for Reuben, Simeon and Levi, their legacy was not one of character. So I take it that what they passed to their children by their own behavior brought the negative results. Now, I just, I just want to pause here. If you were to read through the Old Testament and you see the way that God judges the nations or the way that God judges his own people, brings discipline. There are a few occasions in the scripture where you see God acting on behalf of his own people and bringing some kind of destruction on the enemies of Israel. But for the most part, God's judgment happens when he simply removes restraint. When God removes restraint, it's his judgment. He's saying, you know what? Here's your enemies. I'm, I'm not going to restrain them. That's the judgment. And I think likewise, it's true here. Reuben and Simeon and Levi were hell-bent on being hell-bent. And ultimately they passed to their sons the very character of what they were. Joseph, by contrast, was heavenly bent on being heavenly bent. Faithfulness. And he passed on a legacy of that to his sons. So as we think about this, and I, I said at the beginning that the scripture kind of functions as a mirror. What's your legacy? Is your legacy one of true faith in God demonstrated in obedience? Or is your legacy in the idolatry of pleasure and self-indulgence? Is God honored in your home? Or is he an afterthought? Do you make a priority of worship? Or do work and hobbies get the first place? Well, you know, you're here this morning. As the saying goes, I'm preaching to the choir. Well, what's, what's the test of this? What's the test of the kind of legacy you'll leave? And it's not so much a matter of deciding what kinds of things you're going to say to your sons and daughters. But I think it begins with your, your simple understanding of who you are, 
Are you a disciple of Jesus? And we, we talk here, um, and if you've been through the membership seminar and some of our teaching times at, at membership or at uh, member meetings, we talk about what, what a disciple of Jesus is. And here's some markers, and, and we, we publish these things and we make them available. What is the mark of a true disciple of Jesus? Well, it certainly begins with identifying with Christ. A true disciple of Jesus. Again, what kind of legacy are you going to leave? Is it a legacy of faith? Well, the first question you ask, are you a disciple of Jesus? You're a disciple of Jesus if you've come to recognize your own sin and your sinfulness. And you've turned to Christ and you see him at the cross. We sang songs this morning, glorious songs about what Christ accomplished at the cross. Our righteousness is in him. We have nothing before God except what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Have you looked to him in faith? Have you identified with him? And have you been baptized as, a, as a, uh, an outward uh, expression of that faith? Have you identified with a local church so you can say, I'm part of the body of Christ? Have you identified? Have you, do you continue? Are you committed to gathering with God's people? Gathering with the church for worship and fellowship, knowing that, that when you gather, that's an opportunity for you to be stirred up to love and good works, to, to reflect the very character of Christ that, that the Word of God calls us to. Are you becoming like Christ? Is a trajectory of your life towards obedience? Are you seeking to turn away from your sin? Are you seeking to embrace what God says is good and pure? And lovely do those things occupy your thoughts is your mind set on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God so that the result of that dwelling is the character of Christ is formed in you are you becoming like Christ and do you use the things that God has entrusted to you your time the abilities you have the skills that you have the resources in your hands you view them as is owned by God and you, a steward of those things. See, the legacy you leave for those who come after you is all based on whether or not you're a disciple of Jesus. If you're truly a disciple, those things will spill over. The word of God will matter and you'll share it. Your humility before God will be on display as you, as you repent of the wrongs you've done to your family. The character of Christ increasingly over time will be formed in you as things that will test your patience will be opportunities for you to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. What kind of legacy are you leaving? Well, the second truth that, that I want to take from this is that God's word is sure. God's word is sure. It's something we can count on. Now, as I've been studying uh, Genesis, I've had to remind myself, and I really want to emphasize this to you, that, and now this is going to be an obvious statement, that what is powerful in our lives is the Word of God. The Word of God. Now, it's possible when reading narratives like this to get this kind of mixed up. When we read a narrative like this, the most important thing to us is not the experience, and hear me, this is a very subtle point I'm trying to make. The most important thing to us is not the experiences of the real life actors in the stories. What it means to them is secondary to us than the fact that they have been written down. I know that's a very subtle distinction. What it means to Jacob, what it means to Jacob's sons, all of these things, those are secondary things to the fact that it has been written down for us. Moses spoke from God. He's the, the human author of this. Moses spoke from God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 1.21. So this text before us, this is the living and active word of God. That's Hebrews 4.12. Not Jacob's experience. Jacob's experience isn't the living and active word of God. The, the text we have before us is. And that is not to minimize the importance of God's revelation to Jacob for his own sake and for the sake of his sons. But Jacob, the character in our scriptures, Jacob is not mediating God's word to us. The Holy Spirit is through the words of scripture. And so what that means is, as I read these pronouncements, 
what they meant to the sons of Jacob, that's not overly germane to us. But Jacob's words written down by Moses, that is in fact God's word to us. Do you get the distinction? Now where this matters, and I want to just fast forward. I was having this discussion the other night with, well, I was with Chris, Bob, your son, and we were just chatting about the word of God. And uh, the arguments against the authority of scripture, people will say, well, in the first century, they thought this and that, and, and you know, and we're trying to think it, and what, what, what people do with the word of God is that they say, well, yeah, but that the context and, and, and the experience of those first century people or whatever where the scripture's written, they, they would have taken it this or that way. That's irrelevant. What does it say? It's not completely irrelevant. It's, it's worthy study. But what does the scripture say is the thing that we need to focus on? And that's the point I'm trying to make. So from this, we learn that God's word is sure. And we have an even better vantage point than the Israelite tribes under, under Moses' leadership. We can see how Jacob's pronouncements, because they're in the scripture here for us, how they played out in the settlement ultimately of the land of Canaan under Joshua and beyond. The future of the tribes of Israel had been mapped out and God gave that revelation to Jacob, whether he fully grasped the significance of it or not. But we have it and we can see it. So God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would be a great nation. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob don't see a great nation, but they're holding on to the promise, and, and for that we can be grateful. But we see this worked out. Now what Jacob does here, and, and this ends up in our text, what Jacob does is he reviews the promise before giving his blessings to Joseph and his sons. He reviews that promise. Chapter uh, 48, verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan and bless me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Now Jacob is holding on to that promise. Good for him. But we see the promise written down. And likewise, we can see the unfolding of that. So here in verses three and four, he ultimately uh, repeats verbatim what the Lord had told him earlier in chapter 35, verse 11. There's a slight nuance if you compare it. Changes the be expression, as in may you, like God is wishing you that you would multiply. Not that God wishes, because what God declares is what's going to happen. But the, but the tone of it is like, may you multiply. May you be a great nation. Well, here he changes it to I will make you. He's saying, the Lord has certainly said this. And what Jacob is doing is affirming the certainty of God's word to him. And we can take that because it's written down. The word of God is certain for us. Now, as Jacob proceeds to give these blessings, he does something surprising. We've talked about this. The essence of his blessing is to give Joseph's sons that same place of prominence to his other sons. And what he does, he reckons Ephraim and Manasseh as his own in the same way that Reuben and Simeon are his own. When Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph, he gave priority to Ephraim. And, and here's the point I'm trying to make in terms of the surety of the word of God, because it's written down, it is sure. This priority of Ephraim, this, this idea that the older of the two has prominence over the, uh, sorry, that the younger gets prominence over the older. This has happened before. Abraham's second born, Isaac, he was given priority of Ishmael. Isaac, second born, Jacob, received, uh, deceived ultimately to get the priority over his brother Esau, yet it was prophesied that it would be the older shall serve the younger. And now here Jacob is giving priority of F to Ephraim over Joseph's firstborn Manasseh. When Joseph brought his sons to Jacob, we see how this unfolds here. Manasseh was on the, on the right and Ephraim on the left. So right hand, left hand, right? And we see in verse 14 of, of uh, 48, And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, continues. Now Joseph thought this was a mistake. 
He thought it was a mistake because Jacob, the text tells us, Jacob's eyes were dim. And he tried, Joseph tried to intervene and reposition his father's hands, but his father refused. Verse 19, I know my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Now, that's what's told and that's written down. Now, as we fast forward through the history of Israel, Ephraim indeed becomes greater. So this is predictive prophecy. So I'll just explain how that happens. You may know your Bible history. When the United Kingdom of Israel ultimately divided after Solomon, the southern kingdom consisting of Judah, the tribes Judah and Benjamin, they're referred to going on as Judah. And the northern kingdom led by Ephraim maintains the name Israel, but is sometimes referred to as Ephraim. And as this is in keeping with Jacob's blessing. This is verse 15 and 16. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name, Israel, be carried on. The name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude of nations in the midst of the earth. The northern kingdom was sometimes, as I said, referred to as Ephraim, but also as Israel. They carried on the name of Jacob. Now, in, in the course of history, uh, the northern kingdom was ultimately overrun by the Assyrians, and, and they were exiled and ultimately enveloped into the rest of the nations. But here, just in this small example, because we have the vantage point of, of looking back on history and all how all of these things unfolded, Jacob's pronouncements about these things came to be. And he spoke those things because they were God's word. There are some things said about Jacob's other sons in chapter 49. They're less significant apart from Judah, but they're predictive. And they're, they're, they're incredibly detailed in the kinds of things that ultimately unfold about those specific tribes. So the specificity is remarkable. And what that did was it reinforced to the Israelites, but also the, the entire company of descendants from then on through the centuries that the word of God was sure and that should strengthen their faith. Unlike false gods and dead religions, the essence of God's relationship with his people is that he speaks. God speaks. This is a glorious thing. False religions don't have a speaking God. They're guessing. What does the God want? Maybe I'll sacrifice this or that thing. We don't need to scratch our heads wondering what God wants. He speaks. That's been the essence of God's relationship with his people, that he gives his word. His word is sure because it is based on his very character. As it says in Deuteronomy 30, 16, this is Moses saying to the Israelites, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now they failed ultimately to walk in the ways of the Lord, but this has been reiterated over and over and over again to the, to the Israelites, the people of God, the people of Judah. This is the substance of your relationship with God. When he speaks, you listen. Write to Micah 6, 8. He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So why obey? Why obey? Well, hopefully you see the answer should be obvious because God's word is the only sure thing. Why obey the scriptures? Because the, the word of God is the substance of which, it's the, the very essence by how we know and relate to God. And when he speaks, we say, yes, that is true. You are right. I submit. We don't have to guess. God's word is the only sure thing. Even Jesus reinforced this truth. Jesus was speaking about some near events and some far away events. And it was at the time when his disciples asked him about the temple and look how beautiful it is. And he told them that it was going to be taken down. He told them it would be destroyed. 
And, and then he proceeded to tell them a whole lot of things, some of which are very challenging as we study them. We're going through this in men's coffee on Friday morning. But he said this, and this applies not only to what Jesus said in the moment, to the entirety of Scripture. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So when we look at the Bible, ultimately we can say, this is the word of Christ about Christ. Why do we have these Old Testament stories? I heard um, some years ago, uh, a radio preacher said this, and I don't know if I have it right, but, but when you're thinking about what's, what's the Bible for? What, why do we have this and what's it doing for us? In the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Christ is presented. In the Acts, Christ is preached. In the Epistles, the letters, Christ is applied. And in the Revelation, Christ is anticipated. And you look at this, the entirety of this book, it is all for us to understand about God's self-revelation in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God's word is a sure, sure word. Well, finally, our last, I guess, application point, trust in God's promise. That's very much related to the fact that the word of God is what we, we encounter. It's the way we relate to God through what he has said. But the particulars, the particulars of what God is trying to say, trust in God's promise. Now, as a child grows and experiences the world, his, his immature mind does not fully grasp how things work. And you get this, parents of young children, I remember this. So, for example, you promise your child, we're going to get ice cream. So you get in the car, but maybe you discover that you don't have enough fuel. So you take your car to a gas station and attach a hose, and then you keep going. Now, now that child, depends how old they are, may have no concept that there's this combustible liquid being put into your car, right? They, have may, they may have no concept that you have to actually pay for it. They may have no concept as to how you got the money to pay for it. He may have no understanding as to why there's some particular value in a piece of plastic that you stick on this machine. If you think about it, we just take these things for granted. How does all this stuff happen? All he cares about is that we go to get ice cream. That's all he wants to know. I got ice cream. How it happened and all of the details to get there, that can't be understood by a child. And I think the story of how God is revealing his promise and how that unfolds in the scriptures, kind of like the child. We're going to have ice cream at least in the case of the people of God, we're going to go back to Eden. We're going to have fellowship with God. He will walk with us in the garden in the cool of the day. We'll have that again. Well, the story of Genesis is ultimately how God made man to know him. And you know the story, right? Going back to the beginning, God... God presented all of those gifts in that beautiful, glorious, wonderful place in the garden. And he forbade them from eating of one tree. But the man and woman, they disobeyed and they took of that tree. They took of the fruit and they were banished. They, the man and woman put a barrier of their own sin between them and God. And God mercifully put them out of his presence so that their sin would not ultimately destroy them in the presence of God's holiness. God, being rich in mercy, made promises right from the very beginning as a way to come back, as a way that God would provide this means to have fellowship again. That's his promise. Now, that at the beginning, the man doesn't know, nor can he fully understand how that promise will be fulfilled. The promise to solve the problem and get us back to Eden. How will that happen? Like I said, God progressively revealed. And that first hint was in the garden right after they sinned, right? It was the, 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 the curse on that serpent that certainly was in the earshot of both Adam and Eve. That curse include this little hint of a promise, Genesis 3.15, that there would be a seed of a woman that would one day bruise the head of the serpent, crush, Indeed, the head of the serpent. 
And ever since then, God's people have been looking for that seed. Fast forward to the time of Abraham, Abram as he was called. He was told that in his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, Genesis 22:18. And he passed that promise down to his sons, Isaac and then Jacob, and a nation is emerging. But how this is all going to work out, they don't know, but they're hopeful in the promise. We're going back to Eden. The promised land is the promise. Canaan is supposed to be Eden. And now in chapter 20, uh, sorry, 49 of Genesis, we get another hint, a glorious, beautiful hint. And that hint that is that Judah's tribe becomes the recipient of some particulars in this blessing. So there's another key piece of information filling out the details of the promise. And I will read this for you. Genesis 49, verse 8. This is the blessing to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, it is interesting that while Joseph got the blessing of the firstborn, Judah ultimately in time, as history unfolds, Judah will rise to preeminence over his brothers. And the psalmist would later write this, that the Lord, Psalm 78, in telling the story, the Lord rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. And so Judah, not Ephraim, would ultimately be the praise of his brothers. Judah would have victory over his enemies. In verse 9, describing him as a lion cub, a lion, a lioness, someone not to be trifled with, defeating his enemies. And that certainly came to be as the tribe of Judah rose to prominence and as the, the united kingdom, all of the tribes of Israel united under one king, the tribe of Judah was the preeminent tribe. But then in verse 10, the scepter, the ruler's staff, and it harkens back to that promise that God made to Abraham. He said to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into a nation and kings shall come from you. I will make you into nations, that's plural, and kings shall come from you. Not just one nation, but multiple nations. And we see this unfolding as we, as we move through the scriptures. Judah, Judah's tribe would certainly rise to prominence over his brothers, and then from whom King David would emerge. And we look at his power, and, and Israelites, as they looked back in that time, they, that was the glory days. David, that was the time. Those are the good old days. Now for a time, David and then Solomon leading Israel would be recognized as a world power. They were dominant. Israel, don't mess with them. Don't mess with David. He wins battles. His God is with him. Peace would come over that time under Solomon. But of course... Later kings would abdicate that responsibility. They would abdicate the responsibility to be obedient to the Lord. They would abdicate the responsibility to keep the book of the law before them. Various good kings, lesser good, some really downright evil. But it didn't nullify the promise. The pronouncement of, Jake, of Jacob on Judah, about Judah, was further revealed to David. And, and now we're moving beyond Genesis to how the scepter would ultimately be revealed in Judah. And uh, Phil touched on a lot of this stuff in the adult Sunday school class this morning. But David wanted to build a house, and Phil talked about the word play for the Lord, a tabernacle, a tent. And the Lord promised to build him a house, a dynasty. So this is the promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, the Lord speaking to David, 
I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this is how Judah, the the pronouncement that Jacob made to Judah that the tribute and the obedience of all peoples would come to him. And so following kings, various levels of good or bad These kings would ultimately usher in an age when all the nations would bring tribute, when all the nations would honor the king through Judah, the obedience of all peoples. And as scripture unfolds, we get still more and more of a glimpse of how this is going to be the prophet Isaiah explaining the one in the line of David. For to us a child is born, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For us a t- to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and this unlike any king that ever was, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And brothers and sisters, we know, I'm telling you what you already know, this king forever, the anointed one of God, the final king, the forever king is Jesus, the son of God. And this is the good news. And we look through Jacob's pronouncement to Judah. In effect, it's a little piece of the gospel. And we get to look back and see how God's promise unfolded through the centuries, little bit by bit. The Son of God, born in the lineage of David, divinely conceived in the And the Virgin Mary lived a sinless life, was not recognized, came to his own, and for the most part his own did not receive him. But again, that was part of the plan and purpose of God too. For in the rejection of the Son of God, Jesus, for in the rejection by his people that should have received him, ended up being crucified cruelly on a cross where it wasn't just the human suffering that he felt from the nails in his hands and his feet and and the suffocating experience of hanging on a cross. The great horror that he suffered was that God the Father looked down on that very sacrifice that Jesus went to willingly and heaped upon him all of our sins Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Philippians 2, and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, who we now understand, King of kings, Lord of lords, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father the obedience of every single nation, the tribute owed to him, Jesus crucified and raised. And while while David conquered his enemies, the Philistines, the Amorites, Jesus comes first to conquer the greatest enemy that there ever was, the very sin that gripped the heart of Adam and Eve when they took the fruit, that sin that infected every single human being since the beginning right down to us, Jesus conquered that. He destroyed it. He defeated it at his cross. And so now if you've looked to Christ in faith and embraced the promise of God in the King crucified for you, You are now counted, as we sang this morning, righteous in God's sight. I'm sure the Israelites could not have had even a clue of how this was going to be accomplished. But it's a glorious thing 
when the promise is unfolded for us and God reveals this to us. Now we hold on to this, brothers and sisters. Jacob claimed the promise. Judah claimed the promise. What did it mean? Land? Get back to Canaan. That'll be cool. But it's far more than a piece of property, isn't it? The promise is ultimately fellowship with God in an eternal Eden where there are no more tears, no more pain, no more sin because that will be fully and finally done away with. And until Christ returns, until that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses, until that day, we've got to hold on to that promise. And may I encourage us, consider your legacy. What are you leaving behind? Are you leaving behind a life of discipleship to Jesus? I pray that you are. And know this, that our confidence for anything that we might do is the fact that the word of God is sure. We're never far from hearing from God. We just open the book. We're not left alone. God speaks. And what God speaks are his promises that will never fail. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, your grace to us to open our eyes, to reveal to us the, the beauty of your promises in Christ, your Son. And so we thank you, Father. We pray that you simply keep us faithful to the day that he returns. There's so many challenges that we'll face once we leave this building today. We'll be, we'll be tempted with, with the things that the world offers to us. We'll be tempted to be selfish and self-indulgent. But God, remind us that, that what we want to leave behind is a life of trusting in Christ, a life of walking with him, a life of discipleship. And God, we know that we're strengthened not by intuition or, or feelings, but Father, we're strengthened each day by the surety of your word. As we open it up, it's going to give us the power that we need to face whatever you should allow in our path. And God, that same word is what uh, alerts us to your promises. God, you have never failed to keep one of them and you won't fail to keep the last. So God, keep us faithful to that day so that Christ may be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen.